This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I want to thank all of you out there who continue to support us each week. We truly appreciate all the positive feedback we receive. If you would like to get a hold of us, if you are a band who wants to feature music, or just a listener who has an idea for a story, send us an email at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, our storyteller and journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories at the Acker Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. In the summer of 1979, New York Yankees catcher Thurman Munson, the captain of the most storied franchise in sports history, was practicing landing his brand new $1.5 million twin-engine Cessna at what was then called the Akron-Canton Regional Airport. The 32-year-old superstar started flying a couple of years earlier because he wanted to be able to go home to Canton, Ohio in between games during baseball season. The mustachioed, brawny athlete with the gruff manner was actually a very devoted family man, and he was tired of calling his wife and three kids from hotel rooms. He'd been flying for a couple of years without incident, but this new Cessna would prove to be more than he could handle. A flight instructor and a friend were with him as he did some routine touch-and-go stops on runway 23 off Greensburg Road. That's where the pilot touches down, doesn't stop, lifts up, and flies off for another round. The first three dips were flawless. The fourth and final approach ended in a fiery crash. Thurman's two companions would walk away from the wreckage, but fate would not be so kind to the man at the controls. Thurman died in his burning cockpit, sending thousands of people into mourning from the Buckeye State to the Big Apple. This is his story. Thurman Munson was born June 7, 1947, in Akron, to Daryl Munson and Ruth Smiley. 
He was the youngest of four children. His dad was a World War II vet who drove trucks. His mom, a homemaker. I couldn't find a lot written about his home life other than the use of words like dysfunctional and miserable and the reason Thurman was determined to be a present and loving father to his own children. When he was eight, the family moved a few miles south to Canton, and there his older brother Dwayne taught him to play baseball. He played a lot of Sandlot with his brother's friends, all several years older than him. In a rare glimpse behind the tough mask he always wore, Thurman said he spent a lot of his youth on a farm in Portage County's Randolph Township, where he watched horses and thought, baseball just reminded me of a stallion running free. At Lehman High School in Canton, Thurman became the captain of the football, basketball, and baseball teams and was all-city and all-state in all three sports. But his biggest passion was baseball. He was a shortstop until his senior year. That's when he switched to catcher. One of his best friends, Jerome Pruitt, was a pitcher, and nobody could catch his 90-mile-per-hour fastballs. Thurman later explained, I volunteered to catch him, although I had never caught before. I caught him five or six times, and that was all my high school catching. Look, I just love baseball so much that I would play anywhere. I didn't care. Thurman made a catch of another kind at Lehman High School. It's where he pursued his future wife, an Italian girl named Diana Dominic. But that's not where it started. According to Diana, she had been signing her name, Mrs. Thurman Munson, when she was in sixth grade. Thurman graduated from Lehman High in 1965. He and Diana got married in September of 1968, at St. John's Church in Canton. Thurman's baseball career was just about to take off. It had been a slow build. Because he had just started catching in his senior year, big league scouts overlooked him. He was pursued by several colleges with football scholarships, but Thurman was committed to baseball. He ended up going to Kent State University, a short drive from home, and continued his transition to catcher. In 1967, he joined the Cape Cod League, where his prowess behind the plate and his 420 batting average started getting attention. That arm of his was particularly stunning. He picked a man off base in nine straight games. That was enough for the New York Yankees. In 1968, the team picked him in the first round of the draft. He was the fourth overall pick that year. He spent a year in the minors and was sent to the big leagues on August the 8th, 1969. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. One year later, he was Rookie of the Year and on his way to an almost unprecedented career. From 1976 to 1978, he led the New York Yankees to three straight pennants and two World Series. He himself would be voted an All-Star in seven of his 11 seasons with the Yankees, collect three Golden Gloves, be named American League Most Valuable Player, and become only the second catcher in baseball history after Cincinnati's Johnny Bench to achieve all those milestones. He was the heart and soul of the Yankees, so revered by his club, they named him captain in 1976, an honorary title they had not given another since Lou Gehrig. And New Yorkers loved him like he was one of their own. The word most people used to describe him was gruff. He didn't have much of a filter, said what he felt, had little patience for being anything other than what he was. That often meant pissing off the press or flashing obscene gestures at fans. Some folks called him John Wayne in a chest protector. He had a thick body and a thick skin. He carried on a few long-standing feuds with other ballers, one in particular with Carlton Fisk, his counterpart for the Boston Red Sox, It fueled a lot of tension between the clubs and once led to a bench-clearing brawl that got both catchers ejected. But people in general loved his style. The way he played with sore knees or a bad arm and got the job done because, well, because it was his job. He didn't know how to give up. Back at Kent State, he used to meet his teammate, Steve Stone, in the pool hall at the student union. Munson lost 25 straight games to Steve, but kept asking for rematches. Years later, Munson and Stone faced off in the major leagues. In one game, Stone struck him out three straight times, throwing breaking balls. The fourth time at bat, Munson peered out at the mound and dared Stone to throw him a fastball. Stone did. Munson grounded out. Munson found something of a redemption later when he picked off a second-base runner and told a reporter after the Yankees won that match, if I can't beat you with my bat, then I'll beat you with my arm. As much as he loved being a Yankee and fit the New York archetype, Thurman was still a farm boy, through and through. He didn't want to leave Ohio. He wanted to raise his three kids in the country where he'd grown up. Daughter Tracy was nine, Kelly was seven, and his son Michael was four. When he got tired of having to call them from hotel rooms throughout the long baseball season, he decided to learn how to fly. He flew home between games so he could tuck his kids into bed, smoke cigars on his own patio, and chat about life with his high school sweetheart at their dream house on Plain Center Road. He flew almost every day between Akron Canton and Teterboro, New Jersey, throughout the baseball season. If little Michael, a hyperactive child, jumped out of his bed in the middle of the night crying, 
It was Thurman who would rock him back to sleep, sometimes four or five times in a single night. It didn't matter if he had to fly to a game the next day. He was right where he wanted to be, needed to be. The Sunday before his fatal accident, Thurman flew home from Milwaukee to celebrate his son's birthday. That's the kind of flexibility that flying gave him. On the morning of August the 2nd, 1979, Thurman flew into Akron. He needed to be back in New York the next day, but had scheduled a training session in his new twin-engine Cessna Citation, which bore the license 15NY, 15, the number on his jersey. He'd bought it a month earlier for $1.5 million. It seated five passengers, in addition to a pilot and co-pilot. At 2 p.m. that afternoon, he caught a late lunch with his father-in-law, Anthony Dominic. As the two sat chatting at Presswick Country Club, Thurman mentioned something was wrong with his plane, something that was going to need fixing. The two separated an hour later, and Thurman headed to the Akron-Canton Airport. He was joined by 32-year-old David Hall, a flight instructor, and 31-year-old Jerry Anderson, a family friend. Thurman had received some instructions in flying the plane at the factory in Wichita, Kansas, but he'd made arrangements to finish his training at Akron-Canton. The trio got clearance to do four touch-and-go landings on runway 23. Winds were calm, the skies were clear. Three times Thurman brought the plane in, flying north to south, low over Greensburg Road, dipping down onto the runway, lifting back up, and circling overhead for another pass. Something went wrong the fourth time. At 4.02 p.m., the plane came down a thousand feet short of the runway in the field north of Greensburg Road. It bounced through small trees and underbrush and spun. Then it lumbered onto the asphalt of the road, narrowly missing rush hour traffic. On its path to the road, it had snagged a tree stump that tore open the fuselage. Fuel was leaking from the wing tank. As the smell of fumes filled the cabin, Thurman's companions were able to pull themselves from their seats, but they couldn't pull Thurman out. He was pinned between his seat and the instrument panel, bloody and helpless. Within 30 seconds of the plane coming to a stop, the cockpit was filled with smoke. Anderson and Hall had no choice but to flee for their lives. Thurman Munson died in the flames. Several motorists who had pulled over at the instant of the crash rushed forward. Frank Nicholas, who was driving down Greensburg Road after a day's work at the IGA supermarket in Green, grabbed a crowbar but couldn't get any further than 30 feet. The intense heat held everyone back. While there was no doubt who was in the pilot seat of the burned plane, the coroner would have to use dental records to confirm it for the record. It was nothing short of a miracle that nobody on the busy road had been killed. 
The plane came to rest 125 feet from where an Eastern Airlines DC-9 had crash-landed six years earlier. 22 passengers and five crew in that one. Nobody died. Thurman Munson's was the first fatality at the airport in 25 years. The Cessna was Munson's fourth plane in less than two years, and not everybody thought he was ready for it. Years later, Baseball Digest editor Rick Cerrone said Munson was not as good a pilot as he thought he was, and that one of the Yankee executives was even attempting to get Yankees owner George Steinbrenner to trade him to Cleveland to get him to stop flying. They're all terrified he might wind up killing himself, Cerrone said. In the end, the National Transportation Safety Board said the accident was pilot error. Thurman did not extend the flaps and allowed the aircraft to sink too low before increasing engine power. It caused the jet to clip a tree and fall short of the runway. Hitting the tree stump is what led to the plane bursting into flames. Officially, the coroner determined Thurman died of asphyxiation due to inhalation of the superheated air. It also had a cervical fracture from the impact, a break bad enough that it rendered him unable to move. The fact that he was not wearing his shoulder harness, only a lap belt, may have contributed to that. He might not have been able to save his own life, but his flying companion, Jerry Anderson, credits Thurman with saving the lives of his passengers. Jerry said, Thurman flew that airplane to the last nanosecond. He kept it under control and brought us down. He never panicked. He saved our lives. Thurman's widow sued Cessna in a $42.2 million wrongful death lawsuit, claiming they had sold her husband, an amateur pilot, an overly sophisticated airplane using high-pressure tactics. She would settle out of court in 1984 for an unreported but, quote, substantial amount. Munson was buried on a Sunday, his funeral the most prominent one Canton had seen since President William McKinley's in 1901. More than 700 people attended a ceremony at Canton Memorial Civic Center, a stage set with more than 200 floral arrangements. One of Thurman's favorite songs, Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline, played over the speakers. The entire Yankees club flew into town on a charter jet, even though it meant flying out in time for a game later that very night. Teammates Lou Pinella and Bobby Mercer gave eulogies. Many people wanted to talk about what Munson had meant to them. Bill Crocker, an Akron-area restaurateur, said Munson loaned him $10,000 to open his first restaurant in Merriman Valley, The pair had met at a handball tournament in the early 1970s, before Munson had become a household name in New York. Crocker's restaurant carried Munson's favorite dish and named it for him, 
Frog Legs Therm Munson. Cracker said one day he was with Munson when a charity appeal came on TV. Some disabled child in need. Munson wrote a check and sent it in. Cracker was certain he never mentioned that to anyone. But Munson had a weakness for children. Munson was buried at Sunset Hill Cemetery while his son Michael wore a replica of his father's baseball uniform, baggy pinstripe pants, and an oversized catcher's mitt on his left hand. Munson's number 15 was immediately retired by the Yankees, and the players left his locker sitting empty. Forever. Years later, players would ask, what's with the empty locker nobody can use? And the clubhouse manager would say, that's Cap, that's Thurman Munson. A reporter once asked Yankee shortstop Derek Jeter, why don't they at least use the locker for storage, since there had been complaints about the overcrowded locker room? Jeter shook his head. That's the man's locker. That locker remained untouched until Yankee Stadium was closed in 2008. Then it was moved to a museum in the new stadium. Another mourner at Munson's funeral back in 1979 was Jerome Pruitt. He's that Canton Lehman high school pitcher that turned Thurman into a catcher because nobody else could catch his fastball. Pruitt and Munson were close back then when they started playing wiffle ball tournaments in grade school. But they had a falling out. In high school, major league scouts came to see Pruitt pitch, but no one came to see Munson, the pudgy kid who used to be a shortstop and was doing a little catching. After Pruitt was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals in 1965, things were said and their friendship dissolved. When Thurman died, a friend called to tell Pruitt. He rushed to be at the funeral. He told a reporter they both had been difficult and defiant, willing to let a friendship go in order to stand up for their manhood. Then Pruitt chuckled and said, in the next world, they will hug and laugh about their own stupidity. Yes, Thurman was tough, sometimes immovable, often, as I said before, gruff. But there was no doubt he was also devoted, loving, and loyal. After all, the very plane that killed him was the proof of it. By the way, I used many resources in this story, but in particular wanted to note a Beacon Magazine piece by Michael Weinreb from 1999. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more shows like this, head on over to evergreenpodcast.com. And we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. 
from the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions. You have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.